Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Hey, this is Tommy Prophet, and you're listening to the... Tr- Rick, what is it? <laughs> True Tunes. You can look the, at the t-shirt. The Tiny Tunes. No, no. <laughs> hey, this is Tommy Prophet, and you're listening to the True Tunes podcast. You have a grandstand seat here to one of the most momentous events in the history of science. For the sake of all of us, and for the sake of our country, I know that you join me in wishing this expedition well. Tommy Prophet may be one of the most successful and prolific artists and producers working in the music industry today that isn't a household name. His songs are heard by millions. You've heard his work, whether you realize it or not. And while he's a massive celebrity in certain circles, his name is far less famous than his music, and he's okay with that. I'm John J. Thompson, and this is the True Tunes Podcast. Tommy Prophet is the producer and co-writer behind all of the rapper NF's music, including his new album, The Search, which was his second consecutive number one album on the Billboard 200 chart, shocking the industry by edging out Chance the Rapper and others. He also co-wrote and produced the triple platinum smash hit, Let You Down. That song was number one on the Pop Songs chart and number 12 on the Hot 100 chart. And it's not like Let You Down was a one-hit wonder kind of situation. That song was the third single off NF's third album, and Tommy had been in the trenches with Nate, that's NF's name, since day one. Their combined impact has been incredible, Nate bringing deeply vulnerable, painfully honest, and somehow still hopeful lyrics, delivered with more of a musical rap style than just about anybody in the hip-hop scene, and Tommy, as his producer and co-writer, crafting tracks from the ground up. No samples, real music, full of rich sounds and deep drama. The two are quite a pair. But Tommy's impact is not limited to his work with NF. He has been behind some of the most successful film trailers and TV music of the last few years. His cinematic music has garnered such a following, in fact, he has recently started releasing it commercially, often in collaboration with other artists, but sometimes just by himself. If you've been listening to the True Tunes Gallery Stage Spotify mixtape playlists, you've probably heard several of his tracks. It's some really impressive stuff. It's pretty common to hear people in the music business talk about a new kind of success, new models, new paths, and Tommy Prophet is a living, breathing example of what success can look like these days. The folks at TMZ might not be staking him out, but millions of people will be impacted by his work this week. He's getting it done, 
And on this episode of the True Tunes podcast, we get to visit with him at his home studio to talk about his background, his years as an indie artist, and how he approaches his craft. He'll even build a track right in front of us. He'll tell us all about making music for TV and film and what that side of the business is all about. He'll share some really valuable advice for young, aspiring composers, songwriters, producers, and artists. I first met Tommy Prophet when he and NF were visiting Capitol in Nashville for the first time. I worked in the publishing department and we hit it off right away. For this conversation, Tommy invited me to visit him at his home studio so that he could pull up some tracks if the mood struck. I took him up on that invite, and thanks to his generosity, we get an insider's look at the creative process of one of today's most successful producers and songwriters. Here on location in Tommy Prophet's lair. This Welcome. Awesome studio <laughs> where so much cool stuff has been done. Man, thank you for taking time to be with the True Tunes podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me a part of it. First, can you kind of um, tell us about your path? Like, what, what was music like? How did you get on this journey? What, how did you get here? What did you start doing? What, what inspired you to get in this mess in the first place? Um, dude, when I was like, I think like seven years old, my parents bought me a tiny keyboard. Probably had like, you know, it was like 15 keys, right. like two octaves, not even. And I just fell in love with it. And they were like surprised. Like I had never shown pre like prior interest to music. They just thought, hey, he's a kid and it makes sound. Kids like, you know, toys that make sounds. <laughs> like I loved the piano and I would, I started playing by ear. So I'd listen to commercials on TV and try to figure it out. To make the long story very short, I found myself when I was about 10 years old in my parents' basement with headphones on programming MIDI. You know, back when MIDI was like 128 sounds, that's it. And the last one was like a gunshot in the helicopter. You know <laughs> that, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like the general MIDI sounds. Like I just, I made album after album after album of using just <laughs> those general MIDI sounds. Um, and I was just programming MIDI, making little albums. I would sell them at my church, you know, for $3. <laughs> I'd, wow. sell, I'd sell like 30 copies. There were 22 songs on each one. Oh, my gosh. What were the songs now, like? Yeah, were they don't, songs don't, or were they just... Yeah, they, they were just instrumental, like horrible instrumental MIDI music that, you know... You like video imagine. game kind of music? Like it was, Nintendo stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, video game music, like little uh, electronic, digital, whatever. And... They were horrible. Some of the songs were 47 seconds long, you know, or, you know, two minutes. And I just loved creating and creating and creating. I was just, I think that kind of just kept me out of trouble. I was just so busy doing that all the time. I was just, so now, you know, fast forward, you know, 20, 25 years later, I'm now sitting in my own house, but programming MIDI with my headphones on, just <laughs> making tracks and trying to sell more than, th more than 30 copies. Right. <laughs> Thank you. 
did studying music, taking lessons, learning kind of the function of piano and stuff like that come in at some point? Yes. I mean, so I obviously, you know, I'm a piano player first, and I feel like that gave me a really good, uh, well-rounded knowledge of music and how all the keys worked, and I would just... I was just, I think I was just really driven to learn because I loved it. I wasn't forced to take piano lessons. Um, and anytime I did try to take lessons, I ended up just trying to listen to what my teacher was doing and copy it. You know what I mean? I, I, I never really learned well how to read music, you know, or sight read, I should say. Um, <clears throat> and then, yeah, just learning theory. And once I was introduced to Pro Tools, I mean, that was like, game over for me the the level of editing and all the you know different tools available like it was like my playground so i haven't i basically haven't left the playground since <laughs> right so you said that your early years making those those albums had to do with church was was music always kind of connected to church somehow with you? Was there kind of a spiritual connection to this stuff from the beginning? Honestly, ironically, it was very cinematic in nature, which I didn't realize at the time, but it was very organic. Piano and strings and, you know, big drums. Like, that was just some, something I always just loved. But, um, yeah, I think my parents were awesome my whole life, just supporting me and you know, giving me opportunities and supporting whatever I was into. And I know that, you know, they kept saying, you should play in church, you know, give these talents back to the Lord. And I didn't know what that meant. Like, how does, if I play during the offertory, how is that playing for God? Like, I didn't get it when I was really little, but they kind of just kept putting that into my head. And I had amazing people surround me through my journey too, that just kind of supported me and encouraged me and mentored me really. And just learning like using your gifts period is using them for God. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, only in one area or another to count as ministry or giving your gifts back to God that he gave you. You know what I mean? And there were no lyrics at all. It was literally just um, piano and, and instruments. You know what I mean? And I think just exercising the gifts, any, anytime you can exercise the gifts that God gives you, like that can be an act of worship. It doesn't have to only be Worship music. So how did hip-hop and rap and, and NF come into the picture? Ironically, I just never saw that coming. I mean, I was... You know, I honestly, I used to have a band and I traveled with the band for almost 15 years. It seems like a different life ago now, but yeah, I would travel with the band and we'd play at sometimes churches, sometimes concerts or whatever. And I just kind of had my own thing that I was, you know, head down, working hard, just grinding. And I, I, I remember like my wife got pregnant. We first had our baby and I, I realized like, whoa, like how am I gonna be gone? 150 days out of the year with my wife at home all by herself with this baby and as we start to grow a family like what's the route here what's the path you know and I remember praying very specifically like God give me like 
help me make this decision of what I'm supposed to do because I I can't even make a decision when I'm at a restaurant what I want to eat how am I supposed to decide a life path you know so and right away things started lining up in a direction I I didn't really foresee I would I always produced my own stuff but I didn't realize that my first love was really that production um, stage you know I remember that I was like man well what if I built a studio and started producing for other people and this was in Grand Rapids Michigan so I built the studio and like within five days I had nine months worth of bookings and I was like what the heck just happened like that it wasn't me dude like I didn't even tell anyone I was building this studio and that's why I love sharing the story because it's like it's not me you know tooting my own horn I didn't do anything it just randomly people would be like hey I heard you built a studio some guy from you know South Dakota and someone from New York and some woman from Florida and I'm like someone was at a concert that our band was at last summer and they gave them my name and they looked like found something on YouTube like it was just all this random stuff and I was like oh man like this might be you know the next thing for me or whatever and then you know one month into that me and Nate you know NF we were friends we had been friends for a couple of years at that point and he was just coming into town for one night I was like hey man you want to hang out and I was like yeah, that'd be fun. Let's hang out. And we ended up making a song that night that ended up making its way to Nashville on the desk of record labels. And he got signed as an artist and I got signed as a writer and producer and kind of like that one night single-handedly changed both of our lives. But a lot of time on both of your sides before that hang yes. a lot of preparation a lot of work so it's not just two people winging it and a lark there's a right. lot of preparation on both sides of that stuff there was uh, there was 15 to 20 years of grinding on both of our parts individually and it just happened to you know this beautiful collision coming together at the perfect moment like it just it just happened you know what i mean so did you have much of a background listening to studying paying attention to the the rap genre i probably pulled less hip-hop than nate would naturally go but he pulled me more hip-hop than i would naturally go and i think we just kind of found this really interesting unique middle ground of this alternative music that is heavy hip-hop leaning um but it has you know other kinds of music in it that's normally not in hip-hop music specifically like cinematic type music you know what i mean right. and nate loves movie music he loves soundtracks and he would always shoot me you know tracks from some kind of movie score that he found that he lo he loves strings i love strings so there's like that commonality in the middle where um we just really created something that we just love the way it sounded but not a lot of people were doing it your music from the beginning it felt like well it has the rap element to it but the tracks felt immediately different they were more musical in a lot of ways and they weren't based on samples like the bottom of it wasn't somebody else's music being built upon right um being a musician i just love creating music 
I love playing and writing music, and I think it's not fun necessarily for me to just grab a bunch of samples and arrange them together and make a song. Like my favorite thing is playing these sound libraries, playing like different sounds of strings or pianos or whatever it is, um, and playing the parts and coming up with something that has never existed before versus just altering something that has, you know? And, and yeah, I think Nate liked that a lot too. Like it's very, everything is original, you know what I mean? And his, his music has a lot of music in it. Hey Nate, how's life? I don't know. It's all right. I've been dealing with some things like every human being and really didn't sleep much last night. I'm sorry. That's fine. I just think I need a little me time. I just think I need a little free time. A little break from the shows and the bus rides. You guys coming up into the current scene, it's a real anomaly because you're on a Christian label and right now Christian music is mostly worship music. That's definitely not what NF is doing. And... Um, there's really no, no rock stuff left and the alternative side is pretty much gone and yet NF has a massive massive song last year I mean that Let You Down song crossed over in just a huge way into the mainstream what was that like and what did you see it coming and what, what kind of stuff did you guys have to do to make that happen or is that one of those things where you just kind of watch it yeah, <laughs> I, I mean I no, I didn't see that coming. He has an incredible team of people around him. I mean, he has an incredible vision. He's super um, driven and knows where he wants to go and what he wants to do. And, you know, he has his sights on, you know, the kind of artist he wants to be, which is incredible. And that's, I give him a lot of credit, you know, too, for why he's where he is. I, I think that for that song, I remember we had just finished up his second record, Therapy Session, and we just turned it in wasn't even out yet and he called me he goes hey man you want to get in the studio and i was like dude we just finished an album I'm like it's not even out just give it a second right and you know I'm, I'm being funny but like i didn't want to because i didn't want to get in the studio with him because every artist naturally likes their newest stuff the best right and i knew that if we were working this early by the time his next album was ready to come out Whatever we do, whatever we did that night would have been, you know, it would have been, it will be old by the time, you know, he's ready to release new music. So I'm like, if we work on something now, it'll never get released, which means we're just wasting time because I'm really, you know, I'm all about productivity and staying on task and like efficiency and all that. So I'm like, dude, we can't, we can't work right now. We won't, we won't even use this. And he's like, dude, come on. I'm really feeling inspired. Let's do it. So anyways, after twisting my arm, he came over and that night we made let you down and the next morning you know he he finished up some verses or whatever but like within that that day let you down came out of it and i was like geez so now every time nate wants to get together i make sure okay maybe we should do it just in case i guess i'm a disappointment doing everything i can i don't want to make you disappointed it's annoying i just want to make you feel like everything i ever do is never trying to make an issue for you but i guess the more you thought about everything you were never even wrong in the first place right do you guys sit together and are you building a track with him in the room kind of vibing off that stuff and contributing ideas and then he's sitting there with a pen and coming up with ideas is it all happening at the same time yes i mean it used to be more i mean we were 
probably you know irresponsibly making two or three songs a day <laughs> you know and i'd be sitting here we'd, we'd get a track started and i would start building it while he's on the couch writing all of his verses but now i feel like i mean he's such he's grown so much as a writer he's an incredible writer and he he you know i think his art deserves it he takes it sometimes now he takes it with him and like or he'll stay up super late in the studio and write and he really wants it to be next level and i feel like it shows in all of his music now compared to you know then like his writing has come a long way and so we don't typically knock out a song in a day now we might knock out the majority of a track and get an idea and a scratch vocal or whatever but then he really meticulously works on lyrics which he's so good at you know what i mean so i think um yeah we go through sounds it's like a favorite thing to do is opening up opening up a new pro tool session just going through sound libraries playing different melodies and like you know now after doing four albums together like i, I kind of know the kinds of melodies that he likes and the kind of chords that he likes and the things that he doesn't like but yeah i mean we just we have a blast we create together we it's very collaborative you know the whole process me and him when you're hearing the lyrics is there a is is there a way that the the lyrics are shaping what you're coming up with in terms of the chords and the melodies sometimes yes um it's always different you know like no matter who the artist is or what the style of music is even like i think you know i usually start with a track and we write to the track but sometimes based on what's what comes out lyrically we change the track to match that or the track could inspire writing about something specific like you know and it always I, I don't think there's a specific recipe that we follow every time. I, I just feel like this album we've worked harder than any previous album before and that will will change tons of lyrics or all the lyrics or change the track drastically after it was already started and something he wrote changed it like we went back and revisited and revisited and revisited and changed and changed and changed and like so much more than i've ever done with anybody and it paid off in the end i really feel like because everything just came together even when we were like man what's that first song on the record gonna be you know forever we didn't know what that was gonna be and then we finally it just one day it just clicked and inspired us and it gave him a whole lot of inspiration to write the content that he did, which shaped the track, which shaped the lyric, which shaped the track, which shaped the lyric. You know what I mean? It just kind of, it all went together and it turned out super good. That's awesome. I think a lot of people are a little bit mystified as to the art of putting together a really cool hip-hop track. And I wondered if you would maybe open up a session and kind of give us a little bit of a taste of what it's like to actually do what you do and yeah. kind of show us kind of from the ground up how a track gets made. The thing that I do on every song, no matter what genre or what style of music, anything, or what the artist is, like I just have layers and layers and layers and tracks and tracks and tracks like some songs have 80 to 100 tracks or more i mean the movie trailer tracks have i, I run out of tracks and pro tools i have to which is like <laughs> <combine>. impossible <laughs> <laughs> but 
I think that's like that's the thing. Like you could you could have a track with just kick, snare, hi hat, and then some piano thing, but that's gonna feel always gonna feel like a demo. Always. You know what I mean? So even just layering the keys and layering the kicks and the snares to you know combine two or three or four like i do that a lot and it just gives a creative sound of all of those snares but it still sounds like one it doesn't sound like you know four snares hitting um and then pads and strings and whatever your sound is like synth synth parts whatever um i think for me layering and tracks and tracks it's hard for me to stop and every once in a while i'll get to a point where i i'll just start from the beginning and I'll listen through for context. You know, I'll listen through for context. I keep starting from the beginning. What do I hear in my head? Oh, that needs a little transition into the chorus, like a whoosh or a crash when it hits or whatever, you know, and I just listen for all those things until I can listen through the whole song and not hear anything else that I need to add. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I think it's done. Cause I, you can always add more. I could be, oh, I'll add in, you know, the, the flute. <laughs> But it probably doesn't need the flute, you know what I mean? And at some point, anything you add is gonna make it not as good. You know, sometimes it'll be like, man, that's a great track. And when, once I add that element, it just changes the feel of it. And it might, it's not bad, it just depends on what feel you want. Yeah, I have this track that I started here. Let me pull this up. So it started with this sound right here. I, that's all it was. It was actually just one hit, I believe. It was like, <laughs> like that. And so I put a bunch of, oh, actually, let me show you. I got it here. The original, original sound was actually this. So I filtered it and put some reverb on it. And then I put it into Melodyne because you can have, um, what's it called? Polyphonic tuning. So it it's actually hearing because that's like a minor chord, you know, and it shows you each individual note. And then I went in and changed the notes to create the chords that I wanted. So then it goes. You know, so I kind of create like the chord progression that I want. And then I added this under it. Just like a little pad key sound to fill it out, you know? And then I just added drums to that. You know? Yeah, add the hi-hat, add in some other sounds. And I have this in the background, this little vocal chop. Yeah, and is I that think, something you actually recorded or a little sample or what is it? Um, I think that was a sample from some hip hop pack somewhere. Okay. Sometimes I make my own. Sometimes yeah. and people, I actually don't even tell people they don't right, know. Right, right. I'll just make a noise in the mic and you know yeah. <laughs> pitch it up, and then added a few more hi hats and loop stuff. <laughs> actually a harp sound it sounds like this you 
and I just put in put a phaser on it with some re reverb and uh, EQ'd some of the lows out. But I use a lot of organic sounds, especially you know NF music is. I mean, he doesn't. I don't think I've ever used synths those days. But I like it, it's pretty much orchestral strings. Like that's just stuff I like. like choir strings, piano, something you could almost replicate now i realize i mean i'm saying since like those are obviously keys like you know digital keys or whatever but um yeah so i i imagine someone's gonna rap over this and then i i put this little uh post chorus thing in here added some strings Yeah, so I just I played the uh, I played these parts on the um, on the keyboard with the string library. So it has like a almost like a classical feel to it, but it's still like cinematic and dark. And then on the next verse, I think this is important, like. Once people do verse one and chorus, a lot of times they just, oh, let's just copy and paste that twice or whatever. Um, but making verse two different, you know, so verse two on this track, it still has the same, you know, this sound, that initial sound, but I turned it down and filtered it and I added this choir that sounds like this. It's tucked in, so it sounds like. And then there's um, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this kind of stuff. <laughs> Those are from my cinematic, my cinematic libraries. You know, I have probably. 14 million booms or impacts or whatever i mean <laughs> brahms and just sounds from right. they make a lot of cinematic libraries and i use those and then alter them however you know i need but like i think you know when choruses hit a lot of times you need some kind of crash but i think a lot of times in especially in hip-hop the crashes that they use they're like <laughs> like little tiny like you know what I mean? It's like, well, they oh, have no, they have no air on them. They have no dimensions, so they're they're all digital, and they they're not satisfying or interesting to your ear because yeah. it's just this blip. It sounds literally like a kitten accidentally runs into the blinds. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or maybe the, oh, let's put reverb on that. <laughs> right, but just big dramatic. Yeah, we were actually working on like a slow piano idea at the time, and I was going through. <laughs> I'm gonna play this sound. I, this is like my favorite sound that I own. Um, let me find it really quick. And I was just going through sounds, and then this played. <laughs> and I'm like, we both looked at each other with our eyes wide open. We're like, close this session. We're starting a new song, and we literally made his first intro 
start stemming from that one sound. We changed it a little bit and you know added the tone, but so drag that into your DAW or whatever, and then play something with that. Play something instead of me finding four samples or five samples that you know and just laying laying them in. Like actually cut up stuff and then play something original. Like at least one track, play something original. That's awesome. So when you get a track like this built, you got second verse. Does does this follow the same format of then dropping out for a bridge kind of a thing or? Yeah, yeah. This song specifically, I did two courses and then it has like that post section, and then it gets really big at the end. Um, so i just you know usually add a few more you can see there's a few more hi-hats that i added and yeah i added some loops i usually add a lot of loops to my beats so i'll you know sometimes it starts with a loop that i find that i like or I'll, you know and then i'll add kicks and snares to that loop to enforce it and make it beefy sometimes i'll make the beat pattern first and then find loops to put in with it so it to act as like glue you know what i mean that just makes it feel more and i throw in weird stuff man like stuff that you would there's a lot of color on this screen how many <laughs> tracks do you have on this thing um 63 tracks on this one yeah not that many but not, <laughs> not compared to you know some other ones but yeah like i chopped up these loops and added a bunch of stuff at the end added tambourine and a couple more hi-hats at the end to really like you know i love making songs that um rise and grow in dynamics the whole time so like chorus three is always the biggest and i think that's just probably from my movie trailer background like that's how you're supposed to do it like a third act you know climax one climax two like and so this has kind of become something that has worked so well for you you sort of have a uh, an mo to approach these things do you ever try to challenge yourself by just doing it in a different way do you like how do you how do you keep from having it become a formula yes a lot of times if i really want to challenge myself i'll do a song try to do the whole thing without adding piano in it because that's just a thing that i just do i mean i play the piano so i play all the instruments on piano but i try not to have a piano sound in some stuff i just dig deep into these folders that I, you know of all these libraries and i confession time i spend way too much money on sound libraries <laughs> i have a chronic addiction to sound libraries but i justify it because like that is what inspires me like new sounds like if if i had five libraries and i just used the same ones for everything eventually i'm just gonna not feel inspired anymore it's like the same sounds like how many times you know what i mean can you put the same ingredients together to make different meals you know and so i i i really feed on even like different sounding piano libraries or different sounding string libraries. like i have embarrassingly i have 60 something string libraries just strings and i don't need 60 okay but i genuinely use most of them different you know some are soft some are over the top big some feel real some don't feel real which i want sometimes like 
they all inspire different kinds of tracks and sounds. And so I feel like, I think it's important for people to like, like the sounds you buy, like you get what you pay for. If you're only using free sounds or stock sounds, like it's probably not gonna sound as good as if you just invest even in one expensive, good sounding library where the sounds are just crazy, you know what I mean? Is there anything else about this session? Like, how do you end it? How do you wrap up a track like this? Do you fade them out all the time or do you fight like? Sometimes I, I mean, it's always different. This track just goes. <laughs> One of those big booms. For more information about Tommy's music, visit TommyProfit.com. That's T-O-M-M-E-E-P-R-O-F-I-T-T.com. And you can find his music all over iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, and everywhere else. Of course, you can also just watch TV or some big action movies. Thanks, Tommy, for taking so much time with us today. What an inspiring story. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. This world is littered with stunning, incredible music that never got the attention it deserved. It's unfortunately common enough in standard commercial music for the best stuff to languish, sometimes because it is just a tad too sophisticated for the masses, or the timing was off. But in the rarefied world of high-quality music with spiritual overtones, that list gets even more lengthy and frustrating. There are a few better examples of this tragic phenomena than one of my all-time favorite bands who released two of my favorite albums, music that is so well-written, so well-performed, and so well-produced and conceived that it deserved, in my opinion, to be considered in the same league as stuff by Peter Gabriel or Paul McCartney. I'm talking about the Bay Area band Bourgeois Tag and their only two albums, a self-titled debut in 1986 and their Todd Rundgren-produced masterpiece, Yo-Yo, in 1987. I never had any soul. I couldn't really bunk. I couldn't rock and roll, but I've changed. I used to have no control. I used to be slow and fat, but I've changed all that. And it's much better now. I could have been a white boy soldier. I could have had a son and a daughter. I could have always done what I ought to, but no, I've changed. <laughs> yes, yes, I've changed. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Bourgeois Tag was the joint venture of vocalist, songwriter, and keyboardist Brent Bourgeois and bassist and co-vocalist and writer Larry Tag. The group was rounded out by drummer Michael Urbano and guitarist Lyle Workman, I'll tell you a bit more about them in a minute, and keyboardist Scott Moon. Their sound was consummate, intelligent pop. It had all of the synth and programming the 80s had to offer, an insanely funky and muscular guitar and bass. But it was all in the service of brilliant songs. 
from the almost creepy, sinister alternative sounds of the opening song changed to the one single that actually got some airplay, Mutual Surrender, What a Wonderful World. This was a band with range. Lyrically, the songs played out cryptically and yet just relatable enough to flow. The general lyrical vibe throughout the debut album was suspicion of the American status quo, be it external or internal, communal or personal. The sentiment seemed to be that we could do better. The album explored the violence raging around us in the world, but drew a direct line between that madness and the darkness within each and every one of us. The most fascinating song back in the day, for me anyway, was Electric Train, a song that imagines God as the builder of a model train who decides to give his project free will only to see it all run amok. In the beginning, I had nothing to do. I was all alone in a big empty room, so I decided to build myself an electric train. It took six days time, things were never the same. Bourgeois Tag was never connected to Christian music. The most that could be said about their spiritual perspectives during the making of this record was that certain members were in seeking mode. You can hear it in the songs for sure. Right there in the midst of the escapist 80s came this band with larger than life, super smart music and lyrics that dared to explore the edges. I was hooked right away, but the record wasn't much of a hit. When the next record came out though, I was sure this was gonna be the next big breakout band of the 80s. It was not the first or last time I would be wrong. follow-up album, Yo-Yo, was produced by the legendary Todd Rundgren and had all of the necessary ingredients to be a massive hit. The sounds were even bigger and more expansive than on the debut, and the songs were massive. It was a much more pop-oriented project, leaning more into classic R&B waters than alternative rock territory, but the swagger and smarts put it on par with just about anything else released in 1987. The time for talking's over now, I guess it's time to let you go But I don't, no I don't mind at all 
the one song in the record that actually got some traction was I Don't Mind At All, a great acoustic ballad that drips with resignation and world weariness. It sat right in the groove that groups like XTC populated and benefited from a killer video that MTV played quite a bit. And as is so often the case, though the song is awesome, it's certainly not indicative of the band's general style. Bourgeois Tag hung it up after these two records. Brent Bourgeois did a couple of really good but largely ignored solo records for an imprint of Virgin that explored his spiritual evolution and recovery from addiction. He eventually followed his friend Charlie Peacock into the Christian music world, where he became a successful producer and songwriter, even heading up A&R for Word Records for several years. He released one solo record in the Christian market, Come Join the Living World, that was really spectacular. guitar player, Lyle Workman, has done pretty well for himself. He is probably best known as a composer for films like Superbad, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and many other Judd Apatow films, as well as lots of television shows. Urbano ended up playing drums for another of my favorite all-time artists, John Hyatt, before joining up with Smash Mouth for a time. Larry Tagg recorded a couple of solo records and had a songwriting deal with Warner Chapel Music. He eventually became an English teacher and Civil War historian and has had several books published. So I'm not making this stuff up when I talk about how brilliant Bourgeois Tag was. It just wasn't their time. And for some reason you can't even find their music on Spotify. Brent Bourgeois released an excellent solo record called Don't Look Back in 2014. And you've probably heard a track or two from that on our Spotify mixes. He is still active as a producer and is currently working with Facebook as part of their new music initiative, as are Lyle Workman and, of course, Charlie Peacock. If you want to hear an excellent conversation, look up Aaron Smith's Intersect Radio Show, which is part of the EnterTalk Radio Network, but you can find it on Spotify too, and find episode 10 and episode 13 to hear Aaron, who played drums with the 77s and many others, talk at length with Brent. Several years ago I said goodbye to my but I don't know I don't know I don't mind at all Thank you very much As I climb up on my soapbox for this episode, I'm thinking about a few things that the Bourgeois Tag story and the Tommy Prophet story have in common. Bourgeois Tag made amazing music. I mean, empirically excellent, 
measurably brilliant stuff. And by most measures, it failed. Tommy told us about 13 independent albums with the Tommy Prophet Band, years of touring and backbreaking work, and he's not a rock star. If you measure success in the easiest way, using the tools handed to us by the culture and industry we have at our fingertips, and at any random point in time, it would be easy to define everyone we have talked to and about on this episode of the podcast as a failure. But were they? Of course not. I would have loved for Bourgeois Tag to have made 10 more albums, but you can't always get what you want. The members of the band learned an incredible amount of stuff during those years and turned the heads of some important people, and that work is still paying dividends. Tommy decided to come off the road, to throw in the towel on his dreams of being an artist, and then opened up a recording studio. His years of work and practice prepared him for his next career and a level of success he never imagined. It's so easy to define our success by what we see happening around us in the moment, but I think there's a much better set of standards we should be holding ourselves to, as creators and as people. The very first psalm says that the person who does not walk in step with the wicked or behave themselves in ways that celebrate brokenness, speaking words that mock and belittle, but who instead delights in the word of God, that person is like a tree planted by good water, whose roots never have to look far for nourishment and who is constantly producing good fruit as a result. There are so many other scriptures that do this for us, that help us recalibrate our measurement of success. But this one, Psalm 1, is a pretty good snapshot of what it means to get it right. Am I planted in the right place? Am I drinking from the right source, the good water? Do I love the words of God? Am I producing fruit that is a blessing to the world? If I can dial in success on those things, the rest will come. Okay, I'm climbing off the soapbox now. That's going to do it for episode two. As always, I want to send a big thanks to my co-producer, editor, and good friend Bruce Brown for cutting the show together so well. The music in this episode included our theme song, a special instrumental mix of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul. Everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true.